Well, I hope you get a chance to take that into consideration, especially those of you who are women, be a part of that. And we talk about a time when we need hope more than ever before. This series that we're in called Unbreakable, we're, we're in the book of Acts, and we're, I, I, I portioned it out according to series so that Acts 1 through 7, um, especially um, as we went through chapter 4 through 7, we see this church is unbreakable amidst challenges that it was facing. And what I think is interesting is that line that says, um, you know, what you face can either make or break you. Uh, and it can be all kinds of things because change is difficult. We're in a real change time. Growth hurts. That's why they call it growing pains. And I, I saw this line um, the other day. It says, if you are willing, something will grow from all you are going through. And it will be you if you're willing. So whether it's adversity that you're facing or pain you're enduring or illness that you may be struggling with, it could be the challenges of the everyday changes that we are experiencing in our life today from COVID to the challenges of, of kids and school, working at home, um, all the different challenges that you're facing. In fact, it need not be even negative that you face. Sometimes um, people are challenged because they find themselves successful. Uh, they're growing at a rate they hadn't expected, and, and that becomes a challenge. Whatever it is, how you respond to it will determine how you grow as a person through it. And one of the things that God wants us to do is grow in our character, to become like Christ. And if we become like Christ, we become like two things. We become people who love God, and we begin to love others. We just love better. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is a passage of scripture lots of people turn to in times of challenge. It's one of these challenging times, and right from the get-go, James is writing to a whole church scattered throughout Asia, and he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Turn, turn it around. Instead of that of sorrow, turn it around to one of joy. Get perspective, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. I I, I really like translating these words, perfect and complete, a little bit differently, because for me, they're the same. You could translate it this way. You will become mature and equipped. That's what each challenge does for you. It, it creates a sense of an opportunity as you respond to maturity, as well as it equips you for the challenges that are ahead. And so it's really just your choice. You can let the pain and adversity and confusion move you to trust God and look for the opportunity to grow, or you can find yourself complaining, and you can find yourself moaning and groaning, becoming discouraged, feeling Helpless and hopeless, looking to blame, to point fingers, or you can grow. And you can experience growing pains. I uh, look at this passage of scripture we're going to be looking at today in Acts 6. This is exactly what the church was facing in a challenge. They had faced challenge upon challenge. External, then internal. External, then Internal. And they were, space, they were facing, again, growing pains. Things that, you know, we don't like. Some of you have kids who, they'll wake up in the middle of the night. I guess there's like 
30 or 40 percent of um, kids experience growing pains where their legs are so sore and they don't know what growing just hurts and it hurt even in the early church one commentator sums it up in chapters one through seven as he goes through chapters one through seven he sums it up this way in the first several months after pentecost the church in jerusalem faced a number of challenges the people met the challenge of public scorn with sound preaching. Remember, they, the Spirit came upon them and they started speaking other languages and the scorn was, these guys are just drunk and Peter stood up and said, no, 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 it's 10 in the morning and they're not drunk and then, and then gave a message. And it goes on to say that, and this writer says, they met the challenge of intimidation with prayers for boldness. They met the challenge of hypocrisy with uncompromising integrity. They met the challenge of persecution with rejoicing and continued faithfulness. And after 3,000 members joined the disciples at Pentecost and 5,000 more embraced Jesus as the Messiah in the temple, along with unknown numbers that came into the family of God daily throughout this time, the apostles faced one of the greatest challenges of all. They faced the challenge of success, which is really interesting because most people don't plan for success. And when it happens, a lot of times it's one of those challenges that are, are tough to know how to get through. It could be that as God has caused a pause, not just in our church, in many churches, part of that pause could be a reset for how his Holy Spirit will come and move. Throughout history, that has happened. God purifies his people first and then he begins to start a, a put a desire in people's heart and the Spirit of God begins to move. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, churches are full. That's a possibility. Chuck Swindoll um, shares on this passage, and he says about his days when he was at Fullerton Free Church. He was a free church pastor in Southern California. And it was during the time of the Jesus movement, and, and all kinds of people were coming to faith in Christ, especially in Southern California, and it spread throughout the U.S. and even throughout the world. And, and, and they began to erupt in, in growth in all the churches, his church as well, just mushroomed in growth. He writes this, I witnessed such rapid growth in the church where I served as senior pastor and in others nearby, so the churches were all growing. I observed a common denominator not mentioned in most books. I, he says, I saw churches grow rapidly for one reason or another only to fizzle or fracture just as quickly. They filled up and they began to be drained just as quickly. The churches that continued to grow Here's his comment. Were those with wise, adaptable leaders who were guided by scripture but not constrained by tradition. He writes in his commentary on this. He says that was one of the things that he noted. You don't see it in a lot of books. And if you think about it, the first century phenomenon called the church, the gathering, had no constitution, they had no organizational plan, they had no strategic blueprint for success. They had nothing but the Holy Spirit to keep them cohesive and unified and heading in the right direction. Both relationally connected and on mission to bring the gospel to all people. So as we look at this passage of scripture, you look at chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, we come one more time to an, what I call an internal force of challenge. We'll look at next week chapter 7 and, and through 8-1. 
where you see an external one against Stephen. But today, as we look at this passage of scripture, here is this church facing a challenge. And so it says in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, and in the word believers is a translation here in the New Living Tran- uh, Translation, it's the word disciples. So when you see the word believers here, in the Greek, it's actually the disciples, not the twelve but it's referring to them as a group. And he says, they multiplied. There were rumblings of discontent. And the Greek-speaking believers, and again, in, in the Greek, it's, it's the word for Hellenists, those who were, who were both speaking the Greek language and, and also were very much attuned to the Greek customs of their day, bringing them back into Jerusalem and into that area. They complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that there were widows, were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everyone liked this idea. And they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip. And what I want you to notice, all these names are Greek names, okay? These were Hellenistic Hebrew Jews. And in some cases, Hellenistic Gentile Jews who would be converted. He says, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. They faced the challenge, and they continued to see God impact people. The number of believers, disciples, greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So they face the challenge, they meet the challenge, and they go through the challenge. Our life, every one of you, every one of us, will face challenges. You will meet challenges every day throughout your life, and how you react to them and how you respond to them will be really important. I heard someone say once, do not claim you want to grow and then run away the minute you start feeling growing pains. Run to God, and Jesus will walk you through it. He will actually use it to change who you are, your character. In the early church, with each challenge, they turned to God together as a body. And as a body, they continued to be relational, unified, and on mission together. One of the things that we have said when we went through this survey and pause was, let's do this together. Let's, let's value everybody and let's move together towards reaching people and embracing and empowering those younger generations. So what I want us to do is look at this passage of scripture. And I want you to notice there's four issues that I will share with you that are raised in this challenge and and they had to face these issues each and every one of them and the very first issue is the issue of organization and I'm going to share with you something I learned back in college when I went to Wheaton College and then went into Trinity Seminary something that came out of both church history classes they basically made this statement and they would say it from time to time the New Testament describes church government but does not prescribe it it describes it as you go through Acts and also often through um, the, the uh, letters of Paul, but it doesn't actually prescribe. It prescribes character qualities and things like that. 
There are some people who will want to say that the church has a prescribed organizational structure. But if you look at this passage here and you look at often the church as it grows, it's the context and the culture around it that begins to force it to make decisions of organization. And here's one of them. They organize for an immediate problem. And so as they moved into that place where they now had organized, you'll see... Uh, let me just see where is that. Um, oh, here we go. As they organized, it says, look at six one and six three. It says a problem arose, and one group of widows were being neglected. And then it says a solution was proposed: choose seven who are full of the Spirit and wise. What is interesting in this is it's the first use of the word diakonos, which is a word that means to serve. It meant find seven people who will kind of wait at the tables and organize and, and, and deal with this issue that's before us. In verse 3, the se- it, it's called the seven, just like you have the twelve. It's a designation. Later on in Paul's letters, he starts talking about deacons and deaconesses, and he gives some qualifications. But it's a part of this that out of what's going on in the church, this wasn't part of the synagogue situation. This was this was what's happening. They said, how do we organize in such a way that we do something that's very important? And that is that as we grow, we have the ability to relationally stay together and to missionally move forward. Recently um, published by the Gospel Coalition, which is one of the conservative arms of the evangelical movement, um, people like um, Piper and Tim Keller and Don Carson and others are a part of this organization. They recently published a, a book titled Perspectives on Church Government, Five Views. And the book asks this question, what is church polity? How important is it And after the editors presented an overview of the historical development of church polity, they introduced five writers who make a case for their particular forms of government. Each arguing the form of church polity they believe the New Testament encourages. And one reviewer writes this. He says this. The writers are charitable and gracious in their interactions. Even when they disagree strongly regarding differing views. Okay, we've got five different views here. Readers may not walk away convinced of any one perspective. But here's what I love about what he says. But they will likely grow in their appreciation for others' points of view and the passion with which people advocate for them. There are many approaches to the way a church is governed and organized. There's a single-led elder kind of version of the church. There's a Presbyterian-led. There's an Episcopal-led. There's a plural, what they call plurality of elders who rule. There's a congregational-led. And then underneath that, all kinds of things. We are a congregationally-led church. And I believe it's very important. It's a part of our statement of faith. I believe it is. it, it reflects best the way that God wants to work through a people who are those who know Christ and have the Spirit of God when it comes to decisions and making direction as a church. But I have to share with you that if you look at the Word of God, and as these writers would say and others would say, um, that is something we have chosen as a church as being is one of the things that other churches agree with who are part of the free church. But you cannot say, you cannot go to Scripture and say, this is the one. 
in the only one. Now, from this passage of scripture, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, they will, will argue from a congregational-led kind of government because it says this proposal pleased the whole group. It meant the whole group said, yeah, we like this idea, and, and it's almost like they all voted, but the reality is, we don't know who the whole group is. In fact, as you go through this, there are people who, as you read that book or if you study it, who will say Acts 15 is a much better way to understand how the church should be organized. It, it's more of a Presbyterian form of government where there were elders over each house church and these elders came together as a general assembly. And if you look at Acts 15, when the council came together, all these people came. I could go on and on and bore you to death. There are single-led elder churches. In fact, the free church early on was more of a single-led elder church where they had a general board or what would be called a leadership board. And underneath that would be deacons and deaconesses and trustees. And I don't even know where you get the word trustee in scripture. There are multiple views on how the church should be governed. If you were to talk to someone in the 17th century that congregations should be run by the congregation... Not only would you be laughed at in that time in history, but you would probably be put on the stake. Because that was just so foreign to anything that was happening in that period of time, not only with the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church, but on and on. So I don't want to kind of go into this any longer. We will, I'm planning to do a podcast with President of the Evangelical Free Church, Kevin Compline. And part of that is because we're going to be doing a membership class. And I want to share with you, if you are not a member, we'd love for you to be a part of the team and, and be a part of where God is leading us. And, and that class is coming up March 8th. You can look and find more room and more um, information on that. But what I want to say is, as I was talking with Kevin about it, we just talked about, wouldn't it be good for people to understand what evangelical free and all those things mean? So, so we're going to do a podcast, and I just want to encourage you to, to look for that. My personal experience growing up in, in, in the church is all kinds of different ways the church has been governed. I've experienced it from a plurality of elders to a single elder led to a general board, all the rest. All that to say I wholeheartedly believe the way God has called us to be congregationally led is the way that God wants us to do it. But what I want to just make this point is it is described, it, you are hard-pressed to say it's prescribed exactly how church government should be. The purpose of governance in organizations, think about it, is in order to keep people working together and moving towards an end. And that's what God is doing as he brought the church together. The issue that comes up next is what I would put in the term of Racism. Now, it's not exactly accurate here, but racism is just the belief of the superiority of, of one group having prejudice and discriminating against another because of their race and ethnicity. And so you have recorded something of an age-old problem here. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, Grecian Jews and Hebrew Jews, and they were being discriminated against. This was an issue. One group of widows were being looked after better than others. And I really believe for a specific reason in that time, and that was the Hellenistic Greek Gentile people who came to faith and followed Judaism in that day, the Old Testament, who moved back to, to Jerusalem were at odds with those who were Hebrew-born people of the land because they were bringing back not only a different language, 
and many of them didn't even know the Hebrew and didn't speak well necessarily the Aramaic, were coming back into that setting, and when they came together, there was a tension around those who were the purists and those who were now being conformed by their culture because they had been out and brought back Greek culture. And what I find interesting in here is this. And I just want to say this as a church because it's important to say this in the age we're in. Racism is wrong. Always, everywhere, no excuses. No race is inferior or superior to another inherently. Scripture tells us, go to Ephesians chapter 2, that God, through Jesus Christ, broke the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And, and, and the way that we are to live with one another is incredibly important. Now, I may get a little people, some people a little bit upset when I share this, but there's a book that I've read recently called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson. I had read the book that she had written, which is a Pulitzer Prize winner, when it first came out, this one um, about the warmth of other sons, about the black migration that happened uh, during Jim Crow up in the 1900s to the 50s found it to be really a challenging, interesting book, and I started reading this book, and I find it challenging and interesting, and I just want to say with you, I don't agree with everything, but it's really important, folks, for us to have some, to not write some of these things off and just not have any sense of what the world is understanding. This is something that people are reading and understanding, and if we are serious about moving from a tell them and a show them so we can tell them to a model that says emerging generations, you need to know them. You need to know and understand at least what they're reading and understanding. You don't have to agree with everything. In fact, you should have some good educated understanding around that. There is so many things today that you can go on the internet and you can go to the Gospel Coalition or other places and read and get understanding. But I have to say, we need to engage And we need to show our love by knowing. This second inner threat is to this young community, which they call disciples. And just like you can say um, there's a fluidity to government in in the New Testament, um, you can also say as you look at the names of the people that are called followers of Jesus, there's a fluidity to names. The name disciples is found often, 500 or so times in the Gospels. It's found about 28 times in Acts. And after Acts, it's not found at all. In fact, Paul and his epistles and John and others start talking about brothers and sisters and family, and they start using words like saints. And, and so there's this sense that words are, 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 are moved around and often used in order for people to understand what they were doing. So a deaconess at that time, a diaconis, which is the Greek word, meant um, one who was to serve of these seven, meant that that's all they were. The word means servant, and they used a word that everybody understood. I was talking with Kevin Kaplan setting up this podcast and I found it interesting as I talked with the president of the EFCA and I called him because I said, you know, I just want you to be aware that we as a church are in this process. We're looking at name change. We're talking about governance change. We're talking about, you know, we've got some staff that will be, um, you know, have a succession plan and things moving. And I just want to share with you so you're aware of that. I know Kevin well from my seminary days. And he, he, he said these things. He said it would be wise for churches to not use words laden with potential strife. It would be better to use words that people understand, like leadership board, or like the free church did in the 50s and 60s, general board. 
The idea behind these words are what's important. And when it comes to issues that are not essential to salvation, the EFC, this is quote, the EFC has always taken the middle road. And, and this is what hit me when I talked with him. He said, Kevin, to Kevin, this is harder and harder for us as the EFCA to do in our current culture of polarization. We took the middle road on infant and believer's baptism. And you could go through a number of things where, you know, the Lord's Supper. We took some middle roads. And yet at the same time, this is getting harder and harder to do. To hold the door open so that we can be a, a, a denomination that allows for, um, really, it's an association of churches who hold to attend statements of faith that can allow for there to be differences of understanding. What I want you to note is how they, um, how the 12 and other leaders dealt with this issue that was before them. This is really important. They dealt with this issue effectively, generously, and promptly. They've got a problem. They've got to deal with this problem. So here's what was effective about it. They chose seven Greeks. They chose Greeks to deal with the Greeks. That's a pretty wise thing to do. If you want to meet the needs of someone, get someone who knows them, who also has the bigger picture and says, here's where we're going. When we are looking as um, a church and we talk about um, reaching emerging generations, we at one point were looking for a communications director and we made a decision. We said as we look for this, if this is where God is leading us, and at this point we're not there, but if God is leading us to that, do we want someone, would you feel happy if I was the guy over communications? Yeah, you're laughing. Anybody over 40 should be laughing. Because you don't want a digital immigrant trying to understand the culture and land of, of digital communications. You want a digital native who grew up with it, who really understands it. So as we kind of talk about reset and we talk about what God's doing, part of what we want to do is be able to seed into those places, places where we can make a difference in our culture because people understand the culture. They were effective. They were generous. They didn't deal with them harshly. There's no blaming or shaming. Isn't that kind of interesting? You don't read anything about them. Oh, you guys, I can't believe the way you treated them. Da, 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 da. They said, no, we got a problem. Let's just deal with it. And they were generous and kind. And they did it promptly. When the issue arose, they dealt with it. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They didn't deny it and act like it wasn't happening. Do not allow... We as a church do not allow the seeds of discontent to develop in the fruit of division. You need to do that even in your home life. Some of you have been living with difficulties in your marriage that have been swept under the rug that God is probably saying you might need some counsel and help around that. This isn't just about the church. This is about life. Some of you are working in businesses and you can't do much about it, but you have seen, right? Things swept under the rug again and again. Wouldn't you love it if the leaders would deal with things effectively, generously, and promptly? And that's the desire we have as we kind of continue to move into this. There's another thing, issue of priorities. Let me share with you the issue of priorities. How do you keep the main thing the main thing? It says in verses 2 through 3, it says the 12 called a meeting of the disciples, all the believers, and, and 
and they said, we apostles should be spending our time teaching the word of God, not running a food distribution program. I think it kind of was what they're saying. Let's find some people who are wise and can effectively, graciously, and properly roll this thing out. And then we apostles will be able to spend our time. And this has always been one that's just, I just, I don't fully get. I get the second half of this, but not the first. Here it is. So that we can what? Spend our time in prayer and teaching of the word. So as one of your elders, one of the things I spend time is reading God's word and, and praying through it and understanding it so that I can teach it in a responsible and a hopefully practical, loving way. But here's the thing that I find interesting in this. is It says that we can spend time in prayer. Honestly, I don't know a lot of other senior pastors or leaders of churches that get that. What would it mean... If those who are leaders said, we want to not necessarily do all the things that need to be done to care for the ministry of the people in here, but we need to spend time in prayer and in his word so that we can keep things connected and we can keep moving forward to reach more people with the gospel. You know what could have happened at this point in this church? Right now, when they were going through this, it could have been very easy for them to turn inward and say, you know what, we've got to, and and all the, the tension could have been to the internal needs of the body. In fact, over time, as a church grows, that's what happens. They lose sight of what their priorities are, which are teaching the word of God in prayer. Why do they teach the word of God and and they pray? So that they can teach their people to go out and make a difference in the world all around them. Because the gospel is to spread. If you read the last verse that we read here, it's the word of God was able to spread. I was I was reading this and I was I was moved by these words and, and I remember as I was reading it. I just started to, you know, I go on rabbit trails and I thank God that I have the opportunity to do that and you um, support me to do this. But I started reading and I've done a lot of reading on revivals throughout my life. I have a revival heart. And you may go, what's a revival? It just means that God would move in such a way that his spirit would call us into humility where we have a heart for others and we would be the most loving people in the world. And as people felt our love, they would want to know this God who loves us. And I went back and started reading some of these things. Revival. Do you know, you can go to revival after revival after revival. They all began when people were moved in humility to get on their knees and to say, God, we need you. We can't figure out what this generation needs. We don't have the resources. Every great revival has started when people sought God in prayer. And, and, and it was the Spirit of God working in and through them. And I just had to ask myself, as we move through this in this coming year, as we were taking Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. if you want to join, or 7 p.m. on a Thursday night um, where there's people coming together and they're praying. We want to take this Lent season to pray for confession and repentance. We want to be a people of prayer. And I thought to myself, just think, what if we as a congregation increased... Just 10% more prayer in our church. What would maybe next year look like? And then the issue of favoritism. Basically, this is what's underlying it all. This is the easiest way to explain what's going on. 
It sounds like a big deal to say favoritism. It's just, let me just put it simply. It's how you treat other people. Favoritism a lot of times is what I can get from someone else or I favor someone because I think they're better than this person. However, basically it all comes down to this question to us as we think about our life the rest of this afternoon and tomorrow and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that is simply how do we treat others? Could each one of us love a little better? Is it possible to treat people the way Jesus treated people? If Jesus is the one you claim to follow, our lives should be showing practical expressions of love. And I'm just going to list four things that I think are important in the way we treat people. And the first is just be respectful. Do you treat people with respect? Even the person politically you think is off the wall. How do you talk about them? Do you treat all people with respect? Do you treat the CEO the same as the cleaning person? Be kind. This guy named Kevin Williams writes a book called Irrational Kindness. And it's kind of been like people thought, well, this is a really novel idea. It just means being kind to someone when it's inconvenient or when they are not kind to you. It's just irrational. It makes no sense to be kind in this situation or to that person. And I go, wow, novel concept. I think Jesus talked about that. Be generous. Often Jesus would say, you know, if if you're in a situation and, and someone who's your enemy, because usually the Roman soldier would be able to take you as you're working. Let's say they see you walking on the road and they have this heavy pack and they need to go a mile to where their troops are. They could take you and conscript you and say, carry my pack for that mile. And he said, no, no, no. Go the extra mile. You know what that meant? You look at the guy, because it's really a two-mile journey. He just wants to take it a mile. You can go, no, no, I'll go two miles. Not just one. And the guy's looking at him, what's wrong with this guy? I really need your help at work. And yeah, but it's inconvenient. No, you know what? Not only will I do that, I will take some time and make some time to help. What is wrong? What's, why would you do that? What does it mean to be generous when you... You see someone and you give the extra coat or the extra dollar or a few more compliments than you might normally give or you give away a hundred dollars and you go, God, I really want this to be used um, through this ministry or to these people who are in need <clears throat> and then be honorable. You just do the right thing. If it's good, do it. Over and over, you do the right thing till it becomes a part of your character. That's what Jesus actually meant when he says, you don't let the left hand see what the right hand's doing. It's really what it's all about. 
you don't, you know, if you tie your shoes, no, you, at first you have to concentrate on the right and left hand, but eventually you just get down there and you do it. It's going to be silly if you can't. He's basically saying it's not that one doesn't know the other, it's just that you do it so unconsciously it's part of who you are. Just be generous. Be honorable. It all gets down to how you treat people. It's will you love people better? I um, heard this story. I thought it was really good. I'll just share it. One night at 1130, it was 1130 evening, an older black woman was standing on the side of the road of an Alabama highway trying to endure a lashing rainstorm. Her car had broken down and she desperately needed a ride. Soaking wet, she stood by her car and began flagging a few cars on that road and none of them stopped. And you have to understand, this was done in the 60s. This is at the height of the Martin Luther King stuff. This is when, when black and white relations were at some of its worst. And she's from Alabama, not necessarily the kindest state. Those of you from Alabama, I'm sorry, but when it came to that... And after um, a few failed attempts, this black lady continued, and another car was coming, and she flagged that one, and a young white man stopped to help her, and the man took her to safety, he helped her get assistance, and he did even more than that, he put her into a taxi cab to get her where she needed to go. And she seemed to be in a big hurry, but she quickly wrote down his address and thanked him, and, and then seven days went by, and then there was a knock on his door. And he goes to answer it, and to his surprise, there's this guy standing with a giant console color TV in that day, which he must have been like this, right? Because those were heavy. And it had been delivered to his home. And there was a note attached to it, and this is what it read. Thank you so much for assisting me on the highway the other night. The rain drenched not only my clothes, but also my spirits. And then in big capital letters, then you came along. And because of you, I was able to make my dying husband's bedside just before he passed away. God bless you for helping me and unselfishly serving others. Sincerely, Mrs. Nat King Cole. For those of you who are younger, I'll translate. That would be like Shakira. <laughs> what if you and I just loved a little better today and the next day and the next day Because of the love you get freely from Jesus, what if you faced your challenges with respect, kindness, generosity, and honor?